The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. All right, in chapter 2 of Exodus, we see God preparing the deliverer, and we are introduced to this towering figure of Moses. Moses is the figure of the Old Testament, is he not? Humanly speaking, of course, God is the figure of the Old Testament. But Moses is the towering human figure. We've got Israel in bondage to Egypt. The picture is bleak. They're in slavery. They have no power. They have no hope, really. Apart from God intervening, they will be slaves forever. Egypt has all the power. Mightiest nation on earth. The promised land and all the promises to Abraham look impossibly out of reach. God's deliverance begins in this chapter. God's deliverance begins in this chapter and begins with the birth of a Jewish baby. Born in captivity, born in weakness, in poverty, without any bright future at all, this deliverer is born. And when will the deliverance come? Oh Lord, what is your timetable? Eighty more years. God's ways are not our ways. His patience is not our patience. Another generation will come and go before Moses finally comes back with that staff ready to speak to Pharaoh. Eighty more years. We're impatient, aren't we? It's an age of instant gratification. Put in some money and you get out the salvation, right? Instantly. But it doesn't work that way in God's plan. He's waiting. It's going to be 80 more years. But we have this marvelous account of the birth of Moses. He is the mediator of the Old Covenant. In one sense, A.W. Pink says he functioned as prophet, priest, and king for his people and thus foreshadowed Christ. How is he prophet? Well, he spoke the words of God to his people. How is he priest? Well, he interceded for his people back to God. How is he king? Well, he rendered judgments and decisions, and he judged his people. And so in that way, he foreshadows Christ. Commentator Haldeman uh, looks at some of the antitheses in Moses' life, and I love this. Listen to this. He was born the child of a slave and became the son of a queen. He was born in a hut, and he lived in a palace. He inherited poverty, but was adopted into unlimited wealth. He was a powerful commander of armies and yet a humble keeper of flocks. He was the mightiest of warriors and yet the humblest and meekest of men. By the way, we have that testimony from Moses himself, that Moses was the humblest man that ever lived. I think that's interesting. We'll talk about that if we ever get to it. It's one thing to say that I'm the strongest guy here, but for me to say I'm the humblest man here, well, that's another thing entirely. But we'll talk about that another day. He was educated in the court, but dwelt in the desert. He was trained in the wisdom of the Egyptians, but had the faith of a child. We see that in Moses. It's a beautiful thing. He was fitted for the city, but he wandered in the wilderness. He was tempted with the pleasures of sin, but he endured the hardships of virtue. He was slow of speech, he said, and yet he talked with God. Holding a rod in his hand, he wielded the infinite power of God. He was a fugitive from Pharaoh and yet an ambassador from heaven. He was the giver of the law and yet a forerunner of grace through Christ. He died alone on Mount Nebo and yet he appeared with Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. No man assisted at his funeral, yet he was buried by an archangel. That's quite, a, quite an arrangement of descriptions of Moses and yet here he was born into a humble Jewish family. Look at verses 1 through 3. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, 
and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when, the, when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Stop there. Now, the focus here in this account is on the mother. Her name is Jochebed. We know that from Exodus 6, but his father was Amram. And as it turns out, a fuller picture comes when you look at some of the other scriptures. Take a minute, if you would, and look at Acts chapter 70, 7, or look at verse 20, and also Hebrews 11. If you want to understand Exodus 2, you really have to bring in Acts 7 and Hebrews 11, and it gives you a, a better, full picture of this time of Moses' life. So in Acts chapter 7, and verse 20, it speaks of the birth of Moses. At that time, it says, this is Acts 7, verse 20, at that, at that time Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months he was cared for, what does it say, in his father's house. Now this is Stephen, Stephen's speech before the Sanhedrin. Stephen focuses on it being his father's house. So in Exodus 2, 1 through 3, his mother is the one actively caring for the baby, building that ark and putting the, titch, the pitch on it and the tar. But it is his father's house, and he's caring for the child too. We get an even stronger look at and Keep your finger here in Acts 7, because we'll come back to it again tonight. But Hebrews 11, verse 23. Hebrews 11, 23. And there it says... This is the faith chapter, you know, it's uh, a listing of the things that many have done by faith. And it says in verse 23, By faith Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born, because they saw that he was no ordinary child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So this is a clear joint effort from Amram and Jochebed together raising this little baby, caring for it. Together they had faith, together they trusted, together they believed. We get an even stronger indication in uh, Exodus 3. So keep maybe a pencil or you, know, you got those little cards in front of you. Stick it in Hebrews 11. We'll come back to Acts 7 and Hebrews 11. But look at Exodus 3, 6. When God appeared to Moses in the flames of the burning bush, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So you can just stick the word Amram in there. I am the God of Amram, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so I believe that Amram was a man of faith, a man who had heard the stories about Abraham, the call of Abraham from Ur of the Chaldeans, and I must say, even before that. Because we know and believe that the book of Genesis was written by Moses. I believe it was written by inspiration of God through the Holy Spirit, but his ordinary way of working uh, is that you know these stories, you're just they're called back to your memory, rather than that whole packets of information would be given. But that's possible as well. But I think the stories of God's creation of the universe in seven days were passed through Amram to his son. And all of the things you read in Genesis, 1 through 50, all those chapters passed on, the stories. And so when the angel of the Lord appears in the flames of the burning bush and says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses knew who this was. And I don't think, obviously, he didn't have three months to learn all this. But you know that the boy was raised in his parents' home because it was Jochebed that nursed him. 
once God had sovereignly worked that out. And so he was trained up in the, in the wisdom of the Egyptians, but was trained up also in the wisdom of the Hebrews. He had his father and mother to train him, and this is so very important. Moses was born, therefore, into a family of faith. Father and mother together trusted in the Lord and lived out an active faith. And so I want to urge you fathers, take responsibility for the spiritual development of your children. Pass on the stories of Scripture. We have it written down so we can just show it to them. Amram just had it by word of mouth, but he passed it on to his son. And we have his godly mother who is a, a faith-filled woman, not afraid of the king's edict, not afraid to die. She's going to preserve the life of her, her son. And so uh, her, the parents shaping and training uh, Moses. Parents acted not in fear of man, but out of faith in God. I think it's interesting also how uh, Jochebed, by casting um, Moses into the river, she actually obeyed Pharaoh's command, didn't she? Isn't that wonderful? Uh, well, the letter of the law, anyway. There happened to be a boat around him when she cast him into the river. But, the, you know, she sought to obey as best she could. And so also we as believing people recognize that every authority is instituted by God. And she sought to obey as far as she could. And then she cast her son into the river, really into the hands of God. Now look at verses 4 through 10. It says, his sister, this is Miriam, we believe, stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister, this is Miriam, I believe, asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. This is just one of those great moments of the providence of God, isn't it? So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. So here we see Moses' rescue and then adoption into Pharaoh's household. We should notice, therefore, I think, God's sovereign overruling here. God is sovereignly in charge here, isn't he? He rules over the smallest details. We heard this morning in Matthew 10 where it says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from the will of your father. And so it was that God kind of navigated that ark until it landed on the shore where it needed to go. He sovereignly moved it through the water until there was Pharaoh's daughter. Meanwhile, here's Miriam traipsing along the, the river bank, keeping an eye on it, never got out of sight, and she's just right there to give a suggestion to Pharaoh's daughter. And when she heard the baby crying, Pharaoh's daughter, she felt sorry for the baby. Now, we might ascribe this to natural human affections and emotions, but I don't think so. I think there was a, a, a hatred or even a division in some cases between the Egyptians and the Jewish people. Besides which, it was her own father, I suppose, uh, who had given the order that all these babies be killed. And so it is that even our own hearts, the affections of our own hearts are in the sovereign hand of God. The king's heart is like a watercourse in the hands of the Lord. He directs it whichever way he chooses. And so she takes this baby and feels sorry for the baby. And at that moment, Miriam's suggestion comes in, like a message from God. Shall I get one of the Hebrew women to take care of the baby? Well, that's a good idea. Why don't you go? And we'll pay. We're not, we're not stingy here in Egypt. We'll pay. And so she gets her own baby back. And not only does she get to nurse him, but she gets paid 
by the Egyptians. Look back at chapter 1, verse 10. I just love this. Chapter 1, verse 10. This king, the new king who did not know about Jesus, came to power, and he said, Look, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Look at verse 10. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them. Let's be tricky. Let's be wise. Right? Lest they leave Egypt and we lose their services, right? Well, who's the real shrewd one? Is it not God? Isn't it wonderful that the deliverer, the very human instrument of the Exodus, is trained up and Pharaoh pays the bill? Pharaoh's the one that pays, and it's in the house of Pharaoh that he's, he's, he's uh, put up, he's, he's given room and board and education and everything he could ever need to be a great deliverer for his people. And it is Pharaoh that does it. The sovereignty of God. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who have been called according to his purpose, the sovereign hand of God. Notice also how the angel of the Lord encamps around this little baby long before the baby can acknowledge who his creator is. The angel of the Lord protecting him and guiding him. And so Moses was the perfect instrument. He's trained up in Pharaoh's house. He's also trained up in his own father's house as well. So he receives the wisdom of the Hebrews and he receives the wisdom of the Egyptians. Now there's a big gap between verse 10 and 11, isn't there? A huge bunch of time, many events occurs between verse 10 and 11. But there is biblical insight into that, and we're going to get it from Acts 7 and from Hebrews 11. So I sure hope you put a pencil or something in there because we're going back. Look at Acts 7, verse 21 and 22. <clears throat> in Acts 7, 21, it says, When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. So first of all, we notice that this woman adopts Moses. She's not just an orphan baby project. You know, like you give money to something. It isn't like that at all. She adopts him to be her own. And Moses received, it says, specialized training. We get this only through Stephen, but Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit when he spoke this. And it says that he was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Look at verse, verse 22. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. Now this is a difficult verse to line up with Moses' claim to be slow of speech. I don't know how the two of them line up. It could be all of it relatively speaking. It could be that there were some in court who were better speakers than Moses and he felt himself less than them. It could be that Moses was just looking for an excuse to get out of going to speaking to Pharaoh. And that he was fine in speech, actually powerful in speech, but just looking for an excuse. Because he was very much in excuse mode at that point in Exodus 3 and 4. But we know that Stephen said that he was well trained in the Egyptian wisdom and he was powerful in speech and action. I think all of that sets the stage for an indication that Josephus gives us that he was being groomed for the throne. Josephus said that the Pharaoh who was on the throne at that time had no son and also that Pharaoh's daughter had no son. And so it could be that the whole way was paved for Moses to be heir to the throne and to go right up and rule Egypt. And that gives, I think, a better insight into Hebrews 11, 24 through 27. Look there with me if you would. Hebrews 11, 24 through 27. Again in the faith chapter. It says, by faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be 
known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. There was something that he refused. It was like, in order to refuse something, something has to be offered to you. And my feeling is what was offered to him was the role of Pharaoh's daughter, namely that he perhaps could be heir to the throne. He refused. He rejected it. He didn't want it. Verse 24. Moses, by faith, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose, verse 25, to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. That's incredible. So Moses is filled with faith and he says, I don't want this cushy lifestyle. I don't want the throne. I don't want ease and comfort. I want God. I want his plans and his purposes. And even if that means I'm going to be a fugitive, even if that means I'm going to suffer out in the desert, I want that because I'm looking ahead to the eternal reward. The author of Hebrews says, in Christ. In Christ, he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, we believe that God is and that he rewards those who diligently seek after him. He was looking ahead to something eternal, not something temporary. He didn't want the temporal pleasures of sin. That's America, folks, by the way. You've heard of the flesh pots of Egypt? That's what he rejected. He said, I didn't want that. I didn't want the comfortable, cushy, lust-filled ease of a palace lifestyle. I wanted God. And so he turned his back on all that. And in his mind, he saw himself as a Hebrew. He saw himself as a child of the covenant. Well, sadly, he goes and he takes matters into his own hands. Look at verses 11 through 15. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were. Where his own people were. So you see an indication there of him connecting himself to his people. That's where his own people were, and he watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought what I did must have become known. Verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian. And he sat down by the well. Just stop there. Here, he has identified himself with the Jews. He's identified himself with his people. He's not seeing himself as an Egyptian anymore. He sees himself as a Hebrew. But the problem is he takes matters into his own hands. He's going to deliver his people with the arm of flesh. He's going to use a method that God does not choose, assassination and political overthrow, and he's going to do it in a timing that God has not chosen, namely now. And so by flesh, he seeks to move out and deliver his people. And it will not work. And how can you tell he's in the flesh? Well, what's the first thing he does when he sees the injustice? He doesn't look up to God and sink to his knees and pray, God, deliver this people. He glances this way and that. What's he looking for? He's looking to see if there's any witnesses because he's about to commit murder. This is not God's way. And he knows it. His conscience is testifying against him. That's why he looks around. What's he looking around for? He's forgotten God. He's forgotten that God sees all things. And so he kills this man, and just like Cain, he hides this man in the sand. This is not the arm of faith. This is not the plan of God. And so in fear, after Pharaoh hears about it, he's got to flee Egypt. And so this is typical of us. And I think it's beautiful of the Bible to not hide the sins and the shameful acts of the heroes. This is the towering figure, humanly speaking, of the Old Testament. And he's a murderer. 
He's a faithless murderer. He doesn't wait on God's timing. Instead, he kills this Egyptian, and then he's got to run for his life. Well, he runs out to the desert, and this is all part of God's plan. By the way, remember, at this point it says in, in Acts 7 that he was 40 years old when he fled. So he's got 40 years in Egypt, then he's got 40 years out in the desert, and then he's going to come back. Now, parenthetically, right around Easter time they show the Ten Commandments. Have you ever seen it, Cecil B. DeMille? You remember there's kind of a love interest in there? She ages very well. Have you noticed? Forty years later, she doesn't look like she's aged a day. Not one day. That's incredible. Folks, that's Hollywood. Forty years he had to go out and wander in the desert. Forty years until he was ready to trust in God and walk with him and do it God's way. So he runs out to Midian, verse 16. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered the flock. This shows Moses' courage, physical strength. He takes on these shepherds. They're always fighting over water out in the desert all the time. Wars are fight over, fought over wells. And this man is a warrior, Moses, I mean, and courageously rescues these women. Well, the girls return to rule their father, and he asks them, Why have you returned so early uh, today? By the way, Ruel uh, and Jethro, it must be the same person, it just, I think he had two names. Many commentators stumble over this. I don't think there's any uh, reason to get distressed over it. Verse 19, they answer, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Asked, he asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom. Uh, that means alien there. That's what the Hebrew means, saying I've become an alien in a foreign land. Now, this man, Jethro, is the way we're usually uh, speaking of him, is a priest. We believe he was a priest of the true and living God. And so he understood the call of God, and God had his testimony and his witness even out there in the desert of Midian. And so he gave his daughter, and, and Moses married, and he settled down there. And then we finish in verse 23. It says, During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help uh, because of their slavery went up to God. Verse 24, God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And so God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. But God was crafting an instrument at that point for deliverance. And next time, God willing, we'll talk about his call of Moses at the burning bush. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.